Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together. We 
Father, we give you the highest praise today, and we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We pray that you will make us so acutely aware of your spirit at work in our worship, in our lives, in all that we are and do, and we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Take a moment, share a word of greeting with each other before you're seated. As you're hopefully aware, we have 
just about completed our first week of the prayer vigil, and um, we're already hearing stories back from people of the things that God is doing in our lives as we come together and pray. And uh, we uh, wanted to give you just a little taste of that, and uh, so we asked uh, Jenny Iacucci and Emily Mersloff to share just a little bit about their experience in the prayer room. Hi, um, I'm Jenny, and this is Emily, and we're both seniors at Houghton College. Um, and this past week, we both had the opportunity to participate in the prayer vigil. So we were, like, super excited, and we signed up for a 2 a.m. slot because we did it last year. But when our alarms went off at 1.50 a.m., we were a bit confused. <laughs> Needless to say, it was a long walk to church that morning. Um, I do not normally function past 11 p.m. Uh, no joke, you will find me in my bed at 11 p.m. every single night. Um, so the first thing I prayed for as I laid face down in the prayer room uh, was for God to keep me awake for an entire hour. Um, I was reading through the prayer journal, and let me tell you, I appreciate everyone's honesty. Um, it was very cool to see um, how far I've come last year when I came across my entry that I had put in last year at the same time, which was it was very interesting. Um, so just thinking about everything that happened since I wrote that entry last year, I spent my hour just praising God because he's so sovereign and he doesn't change and he's always there. And he was there when I wrote that entry and he was here when I read it and he's here now. So, Okay, um, my experience is a little bit different. I stress out a lot about the future. Um, so just like with it coming really close and me graduating and not really knowing where I'm going or what I'm doing, um, it's been overwhelming, and it's been, like, consuming my thoughts. So having the privilege to just, like, pray alone in silence and journal and, like, give give control of my future to God was really relieving. Um, but as well as that, praying about that, my home church is in Rochester, and um, there's a little girl there who is, has, was, has been diagnosed by, um, with leukemia, but two weeks ago the doctor said her body stopped responding to treatments. And um, so she has about two weeks to live. So that was a really awesome opportunity to just sit in the silence and um, pour out. Because I do believe there's power in prayer. And so I just poured out my heart. And I spent that, like, half hour interceding for her. So, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, If you haven't been in the prayer room this year, I encourage you to do so. If you have... Encourage you to come back again. You can sign up this morning before you leave in this foyer or the one in the CE building. You can sign up anytime online or just call the church office and we'll, uh, we'll help you get signed up if there's just trouble with that. Every so often the calendar gives us trouble and so if you have any questions just let us know and we'll help walk you through that. But look forward to another week of praying together and uh, the whole, all, the rest of the two weeks they're all open so you can sign up for any time over the next couple of weeks. And uh, we're just uh, looking forward to the things that God is going to do in our, in our lives individually and corporately as we pray together. Uh, also, one of the things we're doing this year is uh, some times of corporate prayer. Uh, we had two this week, uh, Thursday at noon and at 8 o'clock, and uh, just great times of praying together in the prayer room. We have a couple more this week, and unfortunately I noticed one of them was left out of the bulletin, but we're praying Wednesday night at 6.30, 6.30 to 7.30 in the prayer room. You don't have to sign up for that. Just just come, and whoever's there, we'll pray together. And uh, the other one is Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And again, you don't have to sign up. Just come uh, if you can be there for that hour. And uh, just a chance for us to pray together. 
during that time. So uh, Wednesday night, 6.30, and Saturday morning at 10 will be our corporate prayer times this week and also the same the following week as well. So we want to encourage you to be a part of that. I just wanted to, to mention the food pantry uh, item in the bulletin. And also, uh, next Sunday is the last day to bring your shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. So I uh, just want to uh, make you aware of that as uh, we get close to turning those into the distribution center and eventually uh, getting them to the children uh, if, throughout the world. This time we're going to ask the ushers to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. nothing that my hands can do to save my guilty soul. I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole. For nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase. I dare not claim my righteousness but hide within Please Christ to save me from the depths God's pardon I've received I've washed within his precious blood My heart is sprinkled clean Please sing with us I'll praise the God of holiness, of justice, truth, and might, who guides me by his mighty hand to walk within his light. While Satan weeps his shallow lies, God speaks to me in love, reminding me his only son has bought me
If you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers as we pray together, please come and join me. Father, we give you thanks for all that you have done in our lives and in this world. We sing praises to you because you are good and loving and merciful. And through your son, Jesus Christ, you provided the way of salvation for all people. And so we come in worship and in adoration and praise and thanksgiving. And we also come interceding for people who are in need. Father, you see the pain in our hearts, the struggles in our minds, our bodies, and the ways in which we disappoint one another and hurt one another. You see our self-centered behavior and our self-destructive choices. Lord, you know all of the burdens of our hearts and we lay them before you and ask for your grace for your healing, for your mercy upon each of us. We think especially this morning, Father, of people who are grieving, and uh, we ask for your mercy upon them. We, we pray for uh, Paul Young and his family at the death of his mother earlier this week. We ask for your, your healing comfort in each of them. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health concerns, for Tim Nichols and Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, for Alton Shea and for Isla Shea, Dick Gould, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and the others who we know and for whom we are praying. Father, as we went to vote on Tuesday, we were reminded of what we so often take for granted, our freedom. On this Veterans Day weekend, we give you thanks for all who've sacrificed for our freedom. We are more privileged than we often realize. And Father, for all who suffer from the sacrifices of war, we pray for healing, for a sense of grace and peace in their lives. Father, even as we give thanks for our freedom, we're reminded of our brothers and sisters who live in places of opposition and persecution, who live with constant threats and with the limited freedom to worship, for violence and threats that come simply because they call you Lord. We think especially today of some Christians in Tanzania, a teacher recently killed following an early morning prayer vigil. Church members who were receiving threats 
Father, we pray for your protection and your grace upon our brothers and sisters. And we pray, Father, that as they stand tall in courage and in your strength and your might, that they would be uh, a message of hope, of love, compassion, and truth. Father, we also pray, continue to pray about the, the ongoing need from the Ebola crisis. We pray, Father, that you will work powerfully in healing in those places where it is especially most critical. Father, as your children in this place, fill us with your Holy Spirit. As we move into the second week of our prayer vigil, speak deeply into our souls. Transform us in the depths of our being. Cleanse us from our sin and free us from the guilt of our sin. Inspire us and equip us to live in faith and joy and truth and courage and in love. And we ask all of this to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Galatians chapter 5 and into chapter 6, 516 through 610. Immediately after the scripture reading, uh, children through 6th grade are welcome to join the uh, children's church over in the CE building. Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Please stand as we sing together.
Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts and our minds today. And we ask that uh, your, your word would uh, be implanted deep in our souls as we continue in worship. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I had a feeling when I asked you what you wanted to hear a sermon about that this topic was going to arise and I was not mistaken. Probably, probably more questions were asked about a, a variety of issues related to sexuality than any other questions that you asked. And um, it is one of those things where um, er, the minute I saw those questions piling up in last spring, uh, I have been um, losing sleep uh, thinking about this. It's in the back of my mind pondering the whole idea of what to say, how to say it. Um, Because the truth of the matter is, this is a complicated issue. Now, on the one hand, some of you might be thinking, it's not that complicated. This is what what the Bible says. Just state it. Let's all go home. On the other hand, there is a sense of saying, you know, we, we want to be so careful about how we address each other and how we address situations and issues in the world that's so personal that um, it's really not that complicated either. We just love people and go home. But it, it's deeper than that. And quite frankly, it's much deeper than the time we have this morning to talk about it. So if, you're come, if you come this morning thinking, I'm going to get a definitive answer to all of my questions, you probably leave disappointed. But hopefully... By what we talk about today, you will get more of a sense of what the scriptures say to us. More of a sense of how we live as Christians in the world and with each other. As we contemplate this issue of sexuality and the variety of ways in which it impacts our lives, the church, and the world. Now, as I pondered this this, uh, whole uh, issue... I think the thing that I've come down to is that what what I really want to try to do and my goal today, my plan, is that I want to think about this in the way that that Scripture, John describes the coming of Jesus into the world. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, he says that 
Christ came into the world from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm convinced that, and I think it's true of any issue, but particularly of this issue that has the potential to be so divisive, that the, the, the way we need to address it and approach it is from this mindset of grace and truth. And if we walk out today with a sense of that tension in our lives and with that tension in how we are thinking about each other and about this issue and, quite frankly, all of the issues of our lives that we wrestle with and that people wrestle with, I I think we will walk out successful. So let me just say right up front that when we talk about the issue of sexuality, sometimes the church has communicated, at least in in some form, that sex is bad. David Seaman says, I I was in a conference with him once, and he said that when he was growing up, and this would have been, you know, 60 years ago or more, maybe 80 years ago, he was growing up, and he said the message that that the church sent him as a young adult continually was, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. He said, and then when he walked out of the church from his wedding, the, the message went 180, and now the church said to him, sex is good, sex is good, sex is good. And he said, quite frankly, it was jarring psychologically to try to make that shift. It's hard. And somehow we have to figure out a way to talk about sexuality in, in a way that, that is different. Now, when we talk about, you know, the fact that we we believe that sex is a gift of God. And in fact, when you read the book of Genesis and you read throughout Scripture, particularly when you come to the first part of Genesis, uh, chapter 2 and the creating of Adam and Eve, the writer says that this is why man leaves his father and mother is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And he says they're both naked and they felt no shame. Now, at that point, sin had not entered the picture yet. But there was this sense of of this is that God created them for this kind of intimacy. One of the reasons for that intimacy, as God says, is that there will be procreation, that there will be they will bear children. But but even beyond that, there is this sense of intimacy that comes from a sexual relationship. That is a part of a marriage relationship. And I think the reason we talk about the fact that sex is bad is because we are trying to address all of the ways in which we as human beings corrupt sexuality. And we do, like with everything else. I mean, you could define, in many ways, you define sin as taking something God has given us that's good, and we twist it. And we do that with everything, including sexuality. And so when we read the scriptures, we find over and over again, as we did in this passage in Galatians, the the command and the admonition and the warning about sexual immorality, which is sort of a general term for sex that is has been skewed to be practiced the, unlike the way God intended it to be. And one of the things you find when you read the scriptures, when, when the scriptures talk about sex, and it does talk about sex a lot, When you read the scriptures, you find unquestionably that every every form of sex is condemned outside of the bond of marriage. There is not one place in the scripture where 
sex outside the bond of marriage is addressed in any way positively. Over and over and over again, we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the only form of sexuality that is approved and condoned by the Scripture is within the bonds of marriage. And that includes sex. So in our society, you have, we have, you know, lots of, well, we're coming more and more a society in which people think about that and say, that's just crazy. People will say, I can't, I can't live that way. I don't want to live that way. And it is, it's an odd message in our society of hookup culture, in our society of adultery, in, in our society in which sexuality is just simply you do whatever you want to do. I think in the church, I don't think many people in the church would say, I argue with that. We might not always practice it, but I think we don't argue with it. The, the difficult part comes in the, in the church and in the culture. is not just that we are talking about people who are engaging in sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage. But the dicey issue is when we start talking about the controversy of homosexuality. That too was a, a, a significant question that many of you asked. And in fact, in the, in the, when take all the issues that you asked about sexuality, homosexuality, questions about that were by, by far asked more often than anything else. And it's a tough issue. It is certainly an issue that we are you know, talking about a lot in our culture. You are going to get a variety of opinions about it outside the church and even within the walls of the church. I think it's important for us to understand that there is a difference between homosexual inclination and behavior. I think we mix that up sometimes. Just because someone says, I am not attracted to the opposite sex, my attraction is to someone of the same sex, we automatically begin to condemn them. But Scripture never condemns anyone for inclinations about any kind of sin. That would be condemning temptation. And if we condemn temptation as sin, then that means Jesus sinned. Because we know Jesus was tempted. And there's a huge difference between saying, I am tempted, this is an inclination I have, this is even an orientation that I have, and this is behavior that I practice. And I think the church sometimes mixes that up because we're so intent on stating a particular position we have that we forget that the scripture is talking about behavior. And the scripture does talk about homosexual behavior. It does, it does condemn it. There are about, I mean, there are some stories. You have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have some other stories in Scripture. But there are really four places in the Scripture where it is overtly condemned. You have a couple of passages in Leviticus, Leviticus 18.22, which is a part of it, and, and Leviticus 20. And both of these passages are in a list of, of all kinds of, of sexual sins that God condemns because the nations around Israel are practicing them. And it also, we also find in the first chapter of Romans, again, in the list of sins, this is one of the things that's mentioned, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, in a list of sins. 
And so we, it, there is no doubt that Scripture condemns homosexual behavior. And we need to be clear about that. But I also think it is important for us to understand that it is not the unpardonable sin. I think sometimes because of the, the, the culture wars in which we rage, in which we wage against one another, for some reason we have created an atmosphere in which our opposition to homosexuality is far more vitriolic than any other opposition we have to any other sin. We have made that the battle to fight. I was intrigued to read not too long ago something that Billy Graham said. He was, this is years ago, and he was in a press conference, and someone asked the question about homosexuality, and his comment was, you know, the Bible says homosexuality is sin, but he said, what, what I, we forget is, he said, my question is, why have we elevated that to the highest sin? He said, because the greatest sin that Scripture tells us, the highest sin, the most, most condemned sin is idolatry. Putting at something in the place of God in our lives. And he goes on to say, you know, jealousy is sin. Pride is sin. And for us to, to elevate homosexuality to a level of sin that where it's equal to nothing else is unbiblical. And we get caught up in that. And we need to be careful about that. I think that, that it's important for us to, to remember that while we are opposed to sin, we're opposed to all sin. You notice in this passage in Romans chapter 1, this is a passage people will often turn to first about how God turned people over to their retro, reprobate minds. And he says, it says God gave them more to their shameful lusts and, and talks about homosexuality and men committing shameful acts with other men. But then it goes on to talk about other sins that God has condemned. And he says God, says God gave them over to a depraved mind. They'd be filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil, disobey their parents. We don't often talk about that one. No understanding, fidelity, or love, or mercy. And I think one of the things that Paul's trying to communicate here is that, yes, this is a problem, and, and this is sin, but so are all these other things. And in our battle that we are waging against one sin, we often do that with a judgmental spirit, as if the sins we are dealing with are really not that important. Joe Bailey wrote an article back in the 70s about homosexuality for Eternity Magazine. And in this article, he, he makes a statement that, and of course, in that day, it was, a, it was really just kind of becoming an issue and how it was becoming more and more of an issue. And he said, he again said, I don't understand why this has risen to the level that it's risen to, and we do that ignoring all the other sins. And he said, when you read this passage in Romans 1, he said, what are the things has God de- uh, turned people over to? Murder, yes, and shameful thing, lust, yes. But he said, also, gossip, slander. He said, if I were to take a poll, he said, I would bet 
that far more of our young people were turned off to God in the church by people who gossiped and by backbiting in the church than by the temptation to homosexuality. And I think we need to grasp that truth. To realize that when we start talking about one sin as being more important than any other sin, often we are doing that in order to deflect attention off of our own sins. And that's when we start getting into this us and them kind of thinking. And that's always dangerous. Because it, it implies that they are bad and we are not. That they have sins that they need to deal with and we really don't. And we all know that's not true. And one of the things that I've come to realize as we start talking about homosexuality and sexual sin in general is that all of us have predispositions to certain sins. There are things that you wrestle with that I don't. There are things that I wrestle with that you don't. And part of the reason for that is genetics. There, there are certainly, there's certainly evidence that, that we are genetically predisposed to struggling with things. It's also the environment in which we were raised, in which... Things were either condoned or viciously attacked, and we may either be falling into the same trap or reacting against it. The influences on our lives, the things that people tell us, the way that, that we, the, the people, way people influence us. I also think our experiences have a lot to do with the stuff we struggle with. Just life experiences, often traumas that we go through. And all of this together makes us more predisposed to certain kinds of things. And while that doesn't excuse anything, it ought to make us far more patient with each other. It ought to make us far more compassionate with each other. Because what ends up happening is that when we, ha- when we don't struggle with something and other people do, it's so easy to become judgmental toward them. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. If we don't wrestle with anger, then we get all judgmental about people who get irate real quickly. If we don't wrestle with gambling, we are very impatient with people who do. I think it's important for us to understand that that, that we need to be patient with with each other. And we're patient because God's patient with us. And this, this sense that, that everyone has their struggles, whatever they may be. Everyone is wrestling with life. Everyone is wrestling with trying to figure out what it means to live in this world, to be fully human in this world. And we're going to come to different conclusions about that. And we may disagree with each other about that. We may disagree vehemently with each other about that. But we're all called to be patient and compassionate with each other as we're wrestling to figure out how we are to live in this world as followers of Jesus. And it doesn't change the fact that that God doesn't want to leave us where we are and we need to move on from where we are. and, And God's plan for us is for us to be healed of the stuff we're struggling with. But instead of being judgmental toward each other, we become much more compassionate with each other. That's one of the things about sexuality in general. It is such a personal issue. 
It is such a personal issue. And, and it, it is even, I think, probably it raises the level of, of this sense of deep, uh, so, it's so personal when we start talking about uh, not just sexuality in general, but homosexuality specifically. Because there is within this sense that people are thinking that this is my identity. This is who I am. And so as we start condemning people, and, and again, whether it's homosexuality, whether, it is, whether it's living in a culture in which we can you know, engage in other types of, of sexual immorality, or whether we're talking about other forms of sin, the minute we start speaking words of condemnation toward one another... And judgment toward each other. We are in essence cutting off communication with each other. We're saying you're a lesser person than I am. Because I don't struggle with what you struggle with. And again I'm not minimizing the sin. I'm not minimizing the the need for God to work in our lives. Just asking us as his people. To be compassionate. And patient. As we want people to be with us in our struggles. So what do we do as the church? How do we as the church respond to the great issues of sexuality in our culture and the struggles of sexuality in our culture, of what Scripture calls immorality in our culture? Both what we wrestle with in here and what people wrestle with out there. I think for one thing... We need to, to, well, the church needs to be a source of hope for all of us. If the church is not a source of hope, then what are we doing? And I think one of the ways in which we become a source of hope is by focusing our attention on living out the fruit of the Spirit. You go back to, to Galatians chapter 5 that we read a few moments ago. And, and Paul is clear about the, act, the, the acts of the flesh or the sinful nature. And as we see, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery are part of that. But there are lots of other things. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. I mean, you, he, this list is pretty wide-ranging. But the fruit of the Spirit is really focused on the Spirit of Jesus. And it's love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is this spirit that the church, in which the church creates an atmosphere of love and compassion for people. You know, David Kinneman says that if we think that loving people means that, if we, if we fear that loving people is going to mean that we are acquiescing to their behavior, then we really don't love the way Jesus does. Because when I read the Gospels, I find Jesus over and over again being accused of what? Loving people that others think he shouldn't love because it looks bad. Because he he's, appears as though he's condoning their behavior. And I don't see that stopping Jesus from loving people. Rick Warren says that you can only win over your friends, you can't win over your enemies. 
And I think by that he means until enemies become friends, no one's going to listen to us. Until enemies become friends, we really will have no influence on their lives positively. We can talk till we're blue in the face about what we believe, but it will just sound like judgment. It won't sound like love. You know, I think we've allowed the culture and we've allowed some in the church to convince us that loving people equals condoning their behavior. But you know what I find interesting is I don't hear anyone saying that about prison fellowship. I don't hear anyone saying that if you go in the prisons and you work with them, that you must be condoning what the people in there have done. I, I don't hear anybody saying that. It, because it's not true. Loving people means that we are trying to help them see Christ in their lives. That Christ wants to bring healing to our lives and to their lives, whatever the struggle may be. And we can only do that if we love. And Eugene Peterson says, the church is the primary place where we learn the language of love. And I have a feeling that there are a lot of people who would scoff and laugh at that statement because they don't sense love from the church. They just sense condemnation judgment, arrogance, pride. And while we speak the truth, we do that with fear and trembling, as Paul talked about in Philippians 3. And we speak the truth with compassion and grace and love. And love doesn't mean do whatever you want. It means I care so much about you that I want you to know Christ in your life. I want you to know what Christ can do in your life. I want to be a channel of Christ to you. I think the church also then, in order for that to happen, the church needs to be a place of openness and honesty. A place where we can come and confess our sins to each other without judgment and retribution. And again, for some reason, when we look back at the Ancient church, they were a lot better at that than we are. Look back at the ancient church and and, and they were able to come and they were able to to be honest with each other and they were able to to share with each other. I mean, as we've talked before, it was one of the one of the geniuses of Wesley's of the Methodist movement, that the bands, and these were the most spiritually committed people who were part of the Methodist movement, would come together and every week talk to each other about the successes of their lives and the sins that they had committed. And because there was that freedom to be open and honest with each other, there was healing that took place. The great lie of the evil one is you got to keep that secret. But secrecy just enables us to, to feel like we just sin more. It doesn't set us free. And somehow we have to figure out in the church a way to be more honest with each other and to be more open with each other and to find in that honesty and openness acceptance and forgiveness and healing. And we don't say to each other, well, these are sins I've committed, and we say, hey, no big deal, don't worry about it. We say, 
in the name of Christ, you're forgiven. How can we help you keep working through that? And most of the time, that's going to happen in small group settings, in, in prayer groups, in Bible study groups. That's one of the reasons why we, we, in the prayer room, we've got the big wall up there where people can write down stuff they're struggling with and prayer concerns. And it always amazes me every year how open and honest so many people are to write on that wall. And it is, it is so exciting to see that. And we want to continue that. Continue that spirit of openness. We, we put in our vision statement that we want to be a people, a church, in which we can honestly share our personal and corporate brokenness. And one of the reasons I think we don't share our openness is because there is this underlying sense that, well, I struggle with something, but nobody else does. And we all know one of the most freeing things in the world is, is to be able to share what's on our hearts and to find that other people are also wrestling. And we help each other. I mean, it, it is one of the beauties of 12-step of programs. In the very first step, I am Wes. This is my struggle. And in those words, we begin to experience freedom. So instead of the church becoming a place of judgment and a place where we don't talk about stuff as if denial will solve anything, we've become much more free to be open and to share our hearts with each other. And that means we're going to have some open, honest dialogues with each other. We're not always going to agree on issues that we, uh, on issues of, particularly of sexuality. We're going to see things differently. We're going to address things differently. And that's okay. We need to have those conversations. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. Because we dialogue with each other. We work through things with each other. As I, as I was preparing this sermon, I had a number of conversations with people. And as I talked with them, they, they talked to me about from different perspectives. But because they came from different perspectives, it helped me to shape my, my perspective and to see the, the tension of truth and grace that, in which we need to live. And that's what we do with each other. We sharpen one another and we learn from each other. But it's got to be in that spirit of wanting to learn and grow. We can't come to these dialogues with the mindset of, I've got all the answers, you have nothing to teach me. Nothing good's going to come out of that. And as we've talked before, it's not enough to agree to disagree. Because that mindset is basically, well, we're going to disagree until you come to see that I'm right and you come to the light. And that doesn't get us anywhere. Instead, we have this mindset that says we may disagree, but we are going to do everything in our power to love each other, to care for each other, to learn from each other, to grow with each other, to help each other figure out how to live in this tension of truth and grace. Like Jesus. And so we have these honest conversations. And we do it without vitriolic language, without making accusations. Because we understand behind our positions, more than likely, there's all kinds of stuff that we have dealt with or are dealing with. There's all kinds of things that every one of us brings to the conversation. And again, the more patient and compassionate we are with each other in the conversations, 
the more we will see Christ in each other. And we will grow more and more to be like Christ. And the church will be what it's supposed to be. And ultimately, if we are going to say that God's plan for his people is sexual morality, if God's plan for his people is that sexual, sex is limited to the bond of marriage, then we need to be a support network for people who are married and for people who are not married. I think one of the worst things that we do as a church is to say, all right, here's the sexual standard. You have to live by this. And then we walk away and say, we're done. I don't know if you saw this or not. There's an article in Christianity Today magazine, an issue or two ago, by uh, Wesley Hill, who I believe is coming to speak at the college uh, in the, after the first of the year. And he, he writes in this article and, and talks about friendship. And, and he says, you know, I, I, I am gay, but I'm celibate. And, and I, but he said, I, I, I'm trying to understand how the church can help me live out this life. And he said, I've come to realize that what I need are the deep kinds of friendships. The deep kind of intimate friendships that married couples have. And he said, I I want that same kind of relationship with people as friends. He said, I need people who who know when I'm on a trip that when the time when my plane lands. I need people who will know that if I'm late or don't show up for a meeting, someone's going to check on me. I need people who who are going to to call me and and invite me for dinner and not just invite me, but welcome me anytime I want to come. And them to my house. Maybe even we go on vacations together and we take trips together and we hang out together. And he said, even more than anything, I want people in my life who I can care for them too. He said he he has a friend who said to him, you know, what I really want is to be able, when someone is sick, to be able to take soup to them, not just expect them to bring soup to me. But I want this kind of dynamic friendship with people. People who are single, people who are married, people who are young, people who are old, that we live in this type of of friendship, this intimacy of friendship that allows us to support one another and care for one another. And that will mean we sacrifice for one another. And we take responsibility as the church to be there for each other, not only when we're asked, but because we are close enough friends that we have such a relationship with each other that we are just expected to do that in the most positive way. And I don't think we do very well in the church like that. For most of us, the, the orbit of relationships is focused on marriage. But I think when we read the New Testament, the orbit of relationships is focused on the church. And and. Marriage is awesome and God blesses us with marriage and and it is phenomenal. But God also blesses us with so many other relationships that enhance our lives. And the church is to be that focus where we care for one another, we support one another, we love one another, we weep with each other, we rejoice with each other. 
Our lives are interwoven together with each other. And that won't be with everyone. But there ought to be some people that we know we can always talk to and who can always talk to us. People we sacrifice for and people who sacrifice for us. That's the church. That's love. Love is risk. Love is giving of ourselves. Love is caring for each other. Love is going that extra mile. And we create this atmosphere in which we do that for each other. And we connect with each other. We care for each other. We create this atmosphere in which love grows and is nurtured in our relationship. And whether people agree with us about issues or not, whether people see things the way we do or not, we are the church to each other. And that's why I'm convinced Jesus says, everybody else who's outside the church Everybody else who is looking at the church wondering what that group of people is about. Everybody else out there is going to, are going to see Christ because we love each other. In a way that is deep and sacrificial and risk-taking like Christ. See, I'm convinced that this issue boils down, brings us back to the cross. Like everything else in our lives, every issue eventually comes back to the cross. It's one of the things I love about the prayer room this year, is that right there in the middle of that second room is this cross. And it reminds us that the circle of our prayers, as we've been talking about, and the circle of our lives, and the circle of our relationships, and the circle of our sexuality, and the circle of everything about our existence comes back to the cross. And your sin and my sin is taken care of at the cross. And the sins of everybody in the world met at the cross. Because in the cross, we find that tension of truth and grace. The truth that we are all sinners. And there are consequences to our sin. And there is pain from our sin. And the grace to take care of our sin. And the consequences and the pain that our sin brings. It is at the cross that our, the answers to our sexuality are found. N.T. Wright once wrote, The answer to all of the wickedness of the world is found at the cross. The answer to everything we're struggling with is found at the cross. And that means their sin and our sin is found at the cross. Gracious Father, may we see the cross as your place of grace and truth. 
for our lives. Amen. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame and bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Please stand and sing with us. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained Daylight flees now the ground be bows his head curtain torn into
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.